Hi there. You're listening to One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This podcast is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Online at 107.com. We all have a story, don't we? We've all had successes and failures, joy and disappointment, love and sadness. And yet, we've all made it to here, to right now. Our stories are one amongst eight billion others, eight billion other stories, each of them unique, each of them grand in their own way, and each of them a window into the humanity that connects us all. One of Eight Billion tells life stories from around the world. Let's listen. Our story today is about Professor Zeblon Vilakazi, a physicist and vice-chancellor at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's an old friend and someone who is committed to using science and education to create a better future for our world. Let's listen. Welcome to One of Eight Billion. Would you please introduce yourself? Hello, Ivan. So great to get to talk to you and engage in this conversation. I am Zebulon Vilagazi. People know me as Zeb. I'm currently the president, vice-chancellor in our language of the University of the Vedvatesrand in Johannesburg, also known as VETS. So I'll be using the short form for both my name and, and, and also where I work. Zeb, I'm just so excited to be talking to you and thank you for joining us on the show here. Zeb and I were at VETS in the late 90s together in the physics department there, and that's how I know Zeb. Zeb, as he said, is the vice chancellor at the university now, which is amazing. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What did your family look like when you were first brought into this world? Well, I suppose when I was first brought into this world, I didn't recognize them because I was still trying to find <laughs> my place in this crazy world. And at the time when I was born, I'm slightly older than you because I think at the time when you were finishing your undergraduate degree, I was already... I'd already had a PhD. I was already starting up my academic career. I just finished my postdoc at CERN. Just a bit about myself. I grew up in on the east side of Johannesburg. There is a Rust Belt part. If you think of New York and you think of Jersey, I'm from the Jersey part of Johannesburg. The East Rand is a huge industrial area. There's a, a township there where I was born in a town called Jamestown. The township is called Katlehong. And that was in the 1960s, late 1969, of a totally different country to the one that I met you in 1999. For those that know a bit about <laughs> history, I won't get there. <laughs> yeah. So one of a rather large family, there were like eight kids, you know, not so rich, relatively comfortable with teachers. So there was a high premium on education because my father and mother instilled in us that without education, there's no inheritance we have, except for basically using the best that we have of the little education they could give us. And I think those are the values that I carried from since I was born. 
I love how you described the East Rand as the Jersey of New York. I'd never actually thought about that, but it's absolutely a great analogy to those who are trying to understand like the geography of the city of Johannesburg and then Katlechon and Germiston, the eastern part of that metropolis. The more refined people in Johannesburg live in the suburbs uh, north of Johannesburg, right? And the south side Ouch. of Joburg, which is quite rough, I know. <laughs> and the eastern side is largely working class. All the people who work in the steel mills, heavy industry that used to support the mining industry of South Africa. I mean, that's how Johannesburg was established as a city about mm-hmm. 100, 120 years ago as a mining town. So therefore, there were these peripheral industrial towns that were established along the outskirts of Johannesburg. And mine was one of them. So my kind of parents left the rural parts of South Africa and grandparents to work there in the mines and in local industries. A rough neighborhood, yeah. Uh, and so you went to school in Katlehong? What did like, your primary school education look like? At the time, obviously, all schools, and it was during the period of segregation, apartheid. And there were very few mixed schools. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and sorry, late, early 70s to even the mid-1980s when I finished my high school. Uh, it was in an all-black school because uh, very few schools except for the missionary ones, were integrated. You had all these missionary Anglican schools or Catholic schools that were built by the nuns. So they were able to bypass the system and build semi-integrated schools. Because most of the nuns, for most of my friends, who actually got the opportunity to study in the schools, uh, they would go to these nuns, mostly from either Germany or Italy or Ireland, and fathers from there who, in a way, tried to bypass the system and send kids to the talented kids to these mission schools. By the way, largely monastic schools, mission schools for boys and girls, and so on and so forth. It's interesting that they tried to bypass the system by using religion. Did you ever have friends that went to those schools? Or was the educational experience very different than what you were experiencing? Yes, one of my sisters actually went to those schools somewhere in the Natal Midlands, one of the provinces to our American friends in South Africa with a very beautiful uh, mountainous area where they've got some of these prestigious schools. So my sister actually went to one of these Catholic seminaries, mission schools, mm. and the experience was different. She complained about these very strict nuns that were just so horrible. Oh, the nuns could be quite strict. And when you got it, she was a teenager at the time, so clearly she wanted to enjoy teenage life. But the strict Austrian nuns can be quite strict. So they never brooked any nonsense from teenagers. So she was very unhappy. But she got a good education. And I've got many friends who obviously... And that's very interesting, actually. I've got some of my mates who actually went to mixed schools as well. The famous ones would be Hilton, Michael House, two of my American mm. friends. Michael mm-hmm. House and Eton would be the... Sorry, and Hilton would be the Winchester and Eton of South Africa. They were modeled along yeah. the old uh, British system of... Schools for young men who will be leaders. Most of the guys who went there would obviously do what is expected, be a captain of a rugby team, chess team, rowing team, and mm-hmm. then go to Oxford and do it, which is mm-hmm. an interesting degree. And yeah, find yourself as a top executive in these mining companies. It says on your Wikipedia page that you speak numerous languages. Tell me about the languages that you grew up speaking first in Katlehong, and then how that evolved through your education, and, and why did you pick up so many languages? I don't know who the editors of Wikipedia are. <laughs> it does tend to exaggerate. I, I, obviously, where I grew up, Ivan, was a cosmopolitan 
environment. Cosmopolitan, not in terms of race and everything, but cosmopolitan in terms of all the various African ethnic groups. I'm a native Zulu speaker, and I had neighbors who spoke other kind of uh, vernaculars, Sutu, Venda, and so on and so forth. So at that very young age, I was exposed to a multiplicity of native languages spoken in South Africa. And obviously, we had to learn English as a, as a first language and Afrikaans as well which I'm sure you did as well. Yes, that was required for me as well. I was basically dropped in Darmstadt and I worked in Heidelberg uh, with my co-supervisor was there. And there'd be a group of Germans talking and you, by osmosis, you start oh, connecting the dots. And with friends like Phil Fair, who is a common <laughs> friend, who's an, an Austrian. And him and I, you know, drinking one or two beers, we say, let's speak German. So I was very good at German after AP. I don't know what happened. And... <laughs> And I developed a kind of a fondness for languages. And obviously what is correct is then that I went to Geneva, Switzerland as a PhD student and subsequently as a postdoc. Here's an interesting story. I remember when the experiment was about to start, I was in charge of one of the detectors called the electromagnetic calorimeter. And it was December. All the senior researchers had either we're going skiing or doing other things. And I was left as a young senior PhD or postdoc student with, with junior students, masters from Sweden and Holland, and a, few, and a technician. And they said, you are the most senior person here. We need to put this detector together. And you've got a few technicians, right? So therefore, I really had to, and the technicians in France can't speak English. So that was in the late 1990s. And I had to get this experiment in. Then you know that this guy, Fabrice, stood, stood between my success or survival, rather. So what I did then is I, realizing that the guy just gave me the garlic shrug, when I say parlez anglais, he just basically gave me that typical French garlic shrug and said, je parle pas anglais. Houston, you've got a problem here. So I can solve the problem. Either I'm going to do a deep immersion. Uh, I started listening to only French radio, uh, watch French TV for two, three weeks of deep immersion just to get your neural auditory pathways sorted out, read French newspapers, spoke to French people. They thought I was an idiot. And slowly, the, we started you know, working together and talking to him, helping me, basically having a dictionary. There was, there was no Wikipedia then. You had to get a manual dictionary and page through and say, what does this word mean? Write it down. And I mean, the only way to learn a language, you know, always tell people, immerse yourself. Soon after that, then you can start learning proper syntax. You can start, because it's the ear, it's how you, you know, articulate yourself. And then subsequently, you develop the vocabulary. And I think to an extent that by the time I came back to South Africa, I was reasonably competent in French. I love hearing how, you, how people learn languages. And I think you're right. It just, you have to immerse yourself and do something completely 100% of the time, very deeply to be able to understand something and then be able to do the thing and maybe even explain it and teach it. When I was registering for my courses at WITS, I picked physics by mistake, not because I had this grand idea I was going to be a physicist in life, but because physics was really interesting to me. And I'd heard someone say that physics was the study of the universe and everything in it. And that really appealed to me. I remember being in Senate House, and I don't know if it's still called Senate House or not, but I was registering at Senate House and I saw physics major on the list and I just checked it. And then the lady said, oh, you're doing major in physics. You also need to select major in mathematics because that's required. And I thought, oh, cool. I like math. 
I'll do that as well. And I'm wondering what the process was for you. How did you end up studying physics? Why did you choose it? Did it choose you? What was the, what did that whole process look like? I did engineering and I'm not, I don't, I don't know poor people, mechanical engineering was my kind of like, I was doing mechanics for a, a week or two. And I asked the lecturer and I asked him whether do they offer special relativity? Because I was fascinated <laughs> by Einstein, you know, after metric, mm-hmm. modern physics. Metric is our mm-hmm. senior year at school, grade 12. And the guy said, no, in engineering, you make things well. You know, we had to learn about drawings. And I'm clumsy. You know, those, you know those engineering drawings? I really started getting very, very depressed. And when I asked if I could transfer, and yes, I, I transferred in the, in, the, in the second week of my program. It is serendipity, right? I mean, you go to university or college, without knowing exactly what you want. And I never wanted to be a physicist in any case, because I did not get a job and just enjoy being a physicist. I went to see John Carter, who was a lecturer at, in the school, in the Department of Physics. John Carter, I forgot about him. He was so great, so inspirational. You know, he's now retired. And to this day, actually, we are still friends. Interesting story there. I was with my mate, it was 1991, August. And when you're not sure what you're doing, I was tutoring at a local school just to find myself in this place. And I saw one pretty girl sitting on the stairs of the physics department, the stairs where people used to sit. So my mate, I was, oh, that's a nice girl there. What's she doing? And she said, oh, I go talk to her. And I went and I asked her and I looked for something that, are you doing physics? She says, no, she was doing pharmacy. And I said, but what are you, what are you waiting for? No, she's waiting for Dr. Carter, the tutor. And she was collecting some scripts from Dr. Carter. And I said, oh, who's Dr. Carter? They said, no, he's a lecturer here. And I said, oh, I went and saw John Carter on a Friday. And the aim was not to see John Carter for him to be my supervisor. No. The aim was to talk to <laughs> I guess he dismissed me. And then uh, the rest is history. So then John Carter became my master's supervisor. I had a fantastic time with him. And then uh, subsequently, I joined a different group for my PhD. So it just shows how the world works. You say that it's one in a billion. It's a thermodynamic process that you just become one of these billiard balls, putative small atoms that like diffusion, move about, bouncing, finding its path. And then you don't have your locus that is clearly defined from day one. You just meander about, bouncing from one, in a random walkway, you know, if you remember that very well, bouncing from one thing to, and then you find your path being shaped along that direction. So I think this one in a billion talks about us just finding our ways in this large world. Thank you for bringing that up. One of the questions I always ask is, how does it make you feel to be one of 8 billion and to know that there's this meandering path that we're all trying to find our local ecosystem, our local community? This was brought to the fore last week. You remember that the James Webb Telescope, an incredible miracle of technological wonder. Oh, amazing. 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 Located there. And then it unfurled and gave us a glimpse of the universe, almost in real time. Now, think of that thing it showed us, information that comes out of you know, the early universe. Now think about it, Ivan. What it showed is only a speck of dust in the air. Brian Cox, who's a famous broadcaster of popularizer of science, he said, if you look at that picture, the slice taken by James Webb, which obviously blew us, it's just nothing. And it shows billions and billions of galaxies, but it's nothing but holding a grain of sand at a distance of about a yard away, basically your arm's length. And that's how far we saw of the galaxy. I mean, imagine each galaxy is made of hundreds and billions of stars and there are billions of galaxies. And just that snapshot, that tiny 
keyhole into the universe. Now you think of this planet being one of many in this solar system, let alone in this galaxy. And this galaxy is one of billions of others. And you're only one in 8 billion of individuals. Doesn't it make you feel small in the entire cosmos? So small. I love the way you described it as a keyhole. Because, you know, you see these pictures from James Webb and you think, oh my gosh, it's so vast. It's so huge. We can see the early universe 12 billion years ago in that little dot, and now it's even a higher resolution. But you have to remind yourself, oh no, this is just a keyhole. There's even more than that, more than what we're looking at. Absolutely. And the beauty of it in this one in 8 billion story is that, and today apparently is a day that we transitioned into a billion, of course, still counting, is that it's also what it talks about as well. In this, we've got all the conflicts taking place and all the challenges the world faces, the world over, and the climate crisis. It gives, it gives me hope as a natural optimist and positivist that human beings can do amazing things. Look at the amount of ingenuity that this thing had so many points of failure. You're an engineer, you should know better. That it was delayed, became very expensive. It's not about the physics. I'm not talking about the physics or the astronomy of it. I'm talking about the genuine human effort that it took. To actually get this thing at high cost, what, 10 billion? That could have failed. You could have had mirrors not adjusting, and you can't fix them, unlike the Large Hadron Collider. And it worked with in an extremely faultless way. It's a cost for human beings. It was a global collaboration involving ESA in Europe, NASA, and other Australian agencies, and the world in totality. Of course, NASA was very much involved in it. But it just talks about how, what you can do as a human species in these crazy times. If we work together and solve big problems, we can solve climate issue as well. If we were to focus on one big idea as we go beyond 8 billion people. I love that you talked about it. It reminds me and it reminds our listeners to be optimistic and to be hopeful because it's not just a picture that came back from the James Webb telescope. That picture represents the collaboration of many humans of different backgrounds across the planet, all with the same understanding of the scientific method and all with the same goal to be able to come together and create that thing. It's not just a picture, it's a representation of everything that we did as humanity. And I love the idea that, yes, it's possible we can do this. Let's focus our efforts on the climate crisis. Let's focus our efforts on being kind to one another as humans. We're all part of the same giant planet and giant experiment. It's nice to hear you talk about it in such optimistic terms. I think we need more of that in the world. And yet be realistic of the problems and challenges the world faces, identity divisions that actually are artificial. But let me give you an example. I spoke to one colleague in England. I was in the UK last week. And no, I'm an old Edwardian. I went oh, you're to a, Ke- you're a Kes boy. Yes, so they are they are rivals. Oh, as a, uh, the other school, right? Yes, right. right. Ah, okay, you're an old Kes boy. Yeah. Anyway, so he said he's 82 now. He's got a two-year-old granddaughter, wow. and he says wow, that wow. because our tipping point is 2050. Really, tipping point mm. of this planet, and it's actually within mm. our line of sight. We will still be alive. Your kids will be alive. But he says he wants because his projection is his two-year-old daughter will be about his age in the other ten of this of the next century. So it's twenty-one oh two. So his view is quite. I want to look into my granddaughter's eye and tell her 
that you will have a future in this planet. Can you see how personal it is now? Here's an 82-year-old mm-hmm. who's had a full life on planet Earth and thinking about a two-year-old granddaughter, that by the time her granddaughter, his granddaughter is his age, what kind of a planet will it be? And I think that it says it's a collective effort. You need to just work as a human being to just tackle this big issue here. I'm just seeing this as an example that these things actually do get personal once you have that perspective of, it's my granddaughter. It's not something abstract out there. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. Will Steger, the famous polar explorer, was on our podcast earlier this year. And he, as you may know, he's a a huge environmentalist, has been sounding the alarm of climate change for many decades. His perspective was that it's changing. It's changed, perhaps past the point of no return already, we are going to still survive because as a humanity, we are adaptive and we will be able to deal with what is coming down the pike. But his optimism was slightly different than yours, but still a great perspective. Yeah, I know this is changing, but I'm so confident that we're going to be able to adapt because that's what we do. The human race, we've always adapted. In actual fact, our evolution, talking to the experts of evolution here, is a function of the change in the big climatic period. We came out of the late ice age, right? And then as the ice age receded through climate change, we were able to adapt. We left Africa and then we adapted as we moved towards and populated the rest of the world. It was, it was climate that drove us. We'll see what kind of adaptation. Instead of now evolution, our technologies will have coped better. Is right. You can't just be depressed about it. Then you, you become paralyzed. But we can say, how can we, once thinking about that, what kind of brakes can we put? Simple things we can do, right? You know, electric cars and how can you, instead of going to your shopping mall, go for a walk or get into a bicycle. It's good for your health. And I find walking to me quite therapeutic. You, know, you just walk and you just think, think your problems through. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk a little bit about this recent elected fellow of the Royal Society that, that happened to you. You've gone through studying at WITS. You've lectured at UCT. That's the University of Cape Town. You've done postdoc studies at CERN in Geneva on the Large Hadron Collider. You've been through various levels of leadership at the University of the Witwatersrand. And now you're elected to the Royal Society. Can you tell our listeners, what exactly is the Royal Society and what does that FRS mean after your name? The Royal Society would be the equivalent of the National Academy of Sciences in America. You know. However, the Royal Society, being in the UK, uh, was founded long even before America came about as a country. Uh, it was founded by Royal Charter in 1660. Uh, it's funny that its history is, it is the oldest learned society, academic uh, learned society in the world uh, that is currently extinct, still in existence. And uh, this happened in a particular interesting time politically for the United Kingdom because, or England, or yeah, that was, was, was Great Britain at the time, that it was established on the 28th of November, 1660, after the return from exile of King Charles II. Remember King Charles II, there was, what, there was a guy called Oliver Cromwell, General Cromwell, who wanted to form the one who tried the Republican idea in the UK, and Cromwell obviously did not succeed because the British don't like they're quite conservative, they don't like to keep things as they are. So the king, the king came back, and then part of the mobilization that scientists like Robert Cook did and others 
was to say, Your Highness, why don't you establish a learned society and, and patronage of His Majesty? So that's how the society existed. It's independent of government, but it derives its mandate, the Royal Charter from, 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 from Charles. And when I was being inducted there, I saw the mace. This mace that they have dates back to that period. Can you imagine when you, when the master of the mace walks in carrying a mace that is meant to be a representation of the presence of the king or queen? You, you, you feel a sense of, quite frankly, 350 years of history. And when you sign on the same book, when you see that some of the signatures, the signature of Sir Isaac Newton is there. Oh. Robert Hooke is there. John Rutherford, basically all your scientific heroes. It's an overwhelming moment. And I think to me, it's scientifically quite interesting. And also in terms of the curation and how the British are able to really master the art of pomp and ceremony. I mean, you saw the Queen's uh, Jubilee. Is that there is that particular curation of history and culture, which is important uh, in the period where people try. I mean, of course, not all history is perfect, but there are certain elements of history that actually tell us about how institutions can endure over this time, hundreds of years, for the advancement of humanity. Yes, the Royal Society had its own faults, and then and they acknowledge it. That's only in the 1940s that they allowed women. In. Of, course, of course, the famous winner is uh, Dorothy Hoskins, who later on, of course, won the Nobel Prize for the discovery for after whom Hoskins Lymphomania is named. It was said that in the 1800s, the only person who actually could attend was the Queen, Queen Victoria. <laughs> and, uh, and now, obviously, 20% of all fellows are women. And the other part that was interesting that we were told about is that there were some cases where some of the women could write either for their brothers or for their parents. The, the, the brother or the father would be the one that would take the information, the credit. I felt like an, like an imposter that you know, I don't belong here, but there's mm. only, eight, only 56 out of 800 fellows get elected. And most of them, no surprises, would be drawn from Oxbridge, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, and Imperial College. So to be part of that very rarefied group of individuals is something, for me, coming from South Africa, something that I don't take lightly. Congratulations, Abel, on all of the best for that. Thank it's you. It's such an honor to, to have that, to be able to sign your name in the same book that Isaac Newton signed his name in. What a privilege and what an achievement and all well-deserved. Well done. Yeah. Well done. I'm so proud to know you. Come on, thank you. <laughs> we still need to have a beer at some point. Like, like the good old days, yeah. But anyway, thank you so much. What brings you joy these days? You're an eternal optimist and a positivist, as you've described yourself. But it almost feels like anything makes you smile, anything will give you joy. But what are the things that you look to do that for you when you're maybe having a downtime? What are those things? Family. You know, last week... Just before I left to the UK, rather two weeks ago, I drove. I've got the three girls and my wife. We drove to a place called the Waterbury, the north of Johannesburg, one of the game reserves. We call it going to the bush. We just drove and just the five of us in a car. And just being with my family gives me joy. Whilst they're still young, I mean, I enjoy them, eight, nine, and 17. Spending time with them was just so beautiful. And it was seeing how they view the world and just makes you appreciate life differently. And the responsibility you have, of course, as a parent. That is my first source of joy with being with my family. 
and I enjoy cooking. I'm a foodie. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I do a no, it's my new hobby. Sunday roast uh, with a glass of a very fine Stellenbosch and listening to Beethoven or Bach in the background, his music wafting through. It's just because cooking just gets you into your zone. That is little things in life that make me happy. I like music, uh, all forms of genres. And just that Sunday when you just have your downtime, you make your meal Sunday roast and you listen to beautiful music. Do you have a memorable mentor or supervisor or leader throughout your career that sticks out as someone that really taught you a nugget that you keep with yourself for all times? One was my mentor when I went to is Dr. Tony Phillips from the UK, Dr. Carter, Professor, Professor Sershop Friedel, my mentor in Cape Town called uh, Jean Clemens, who sadly passed on. I mean, these are my these are in particular the last two have been extremely influential in my life. And I think I owe everything to the guidance and mentorship they, for the, and, the, and the opportunities they gave me. Mentors are so important in life. And thank you for listing those wonderful people. I feel like you've been a mentor to me as well and seeing you at UCT and also at WITS and being able to watch you evolve. It's just been so great to learn from your experiences and the way you've handled yourself. It's just so inspiring as well. So thank you for doing that. It was really such a great pleasure. I mean, when I met, you guys gave me energy. Uh, well, so much energy. And I think as a youngster who was transitioning towards being a junior faculty member, I enjoyed the company, the energy that uh, you brought. So I think to me, it was like a reconnect as if we just met yesterday. So it just it was... about the special universe that you live in uh, that just allowed me to connect with you so quickly, uh, Ivan. And it yes, just... thank you. It's been awesome to talk to you. Oh, thank you. And a great leader you are because I've been following you now. So I'm, I'm quite inspired by leadership and heading of this program. I don't, I mean, I was expecting, you know, you're a professional leader of a bit of business, not, a, not an anchor man. <laughs> And <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, I really have enjoyed it. Yeah. I want to thank you for being on the show. I think I have one final question. Is there something you're looking forward to in life that you haven't seen in your own lifetime that you hope you'll see, whether it's big or small, maybe something that you've thought about? My grandchildren grow. And the only thing I can do is to ensure that the world, I can change the space around me, I can change. I can't change the entire universe. I'm not the president of any country. But in a small way, what can I do to make this world a better place? And I'm not saying my biological grandchildren, but I mean that next generation, what world will they see? You know, I mean, it could be your grandchildren, my anyone's grandchildren, but our generation here. Let's let us, I'll be satisfied on my last day to say like, I did my best to, make this a better place in one small place like one then i'm ready to sign off you have already so much impact on your own local community and the university thank you for being on the show thank you for your time thank you my friend very much appreciate i look forward to seeing you sometime in the future and uh, take care i hope you'll join us in the next episode of one of eight billion when we hear from Amy Berman, founder of the Mother Bear Project, which provides comfort and hope to children in emerging nations who are affected by HIV and AIDS.
I thought about my two children and what brought them comfort when they went to sleep at night, and an image of the knit bears my mom had made for them came to mind. I was going to send knit bear. I asked my mom for the pattern and to show me how it's done. I muddled through my first bear and then did something completely out of my character. I began inviting friends, strangers, and anyone who was willing to come to my house, and I would teach them to knit if they would knit a bear for me to send. My hope was to someday send 100 bears, but to date, over 187,000 bears have been sent across sub-Saharan Africa to children in regions highly affected by HIV and AIDS. This is how Mother Bear Project, my accidental nonprofit organization, got started. This has been One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us, online at oneof8b.com. Join us again next time as we listen to One of Eight Billion Other Stories. One of Eight Billion is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Find out more at 107.com. I'm Ivan Stegic. Thank you for listening.